In New Mexico, we visit a town divided over abortion access. I was compelled to come speak here in person to please request no and to not limit my ability to choose my rights on my own body. For Saturday, April 29th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. Sarah McCammon. This hour, a trans woman reflects on the Jerry Springer show and how it portrayed her community. The way that we depict people's stories or even elevate people's stories can open them up to harm, especially if they're already marginalized. And we catch up with the star of the new film based on the classic book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I am so embarrassed. I never actually read Judy Bloom before I got the audition. But first, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. As fierce fighting between the Sudanese army and a paramilitary group continues, thousands are trying to flee the country, including Americans. The State Department says a bus convoy arrived in Port Sudan today carrying U.S. citizens and others from the capital Khartoum and other parts of Sudan. The paramilitary is assisting and has three vehicles in the convoy to help get the buses through the checkpoints. Meanwhile, the fighting has been going on now for three weeks with no sign of talks between the rival forces. Kate Bartlett has more. The UK has evacuated some 1,650 citizens by air ahead of a Saturday deadline. The US is helping hundreds of its nationals evacuate overland in a convoy of buses monitored by drones, according to the New York Times. There have been complaints from many at Port Sudan that they've been held up by bureaucratic processes and foreign nationals have been given priority. One U.S. national originally from Sudan told NPR he'd been unable to get on a boat from Port Sudan to Jeddah after making the dangerous journey from Khartoum with his money hidden in his socks. His bus was twice stopped by militia, he said. At the border with Egypt, a lack of humanitarian aid has been reported. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. In South Texas near Houston, authorities are searching for a gunman who allegedly opened fire on his neighbors last night, killing at least five people, including an eight-year-old child. The sheriff's office says the victims asked the man to stop firing an AR-15-style weapon in his front yard, and then he allegedly started firing into the neighbor's house. The FBI is insisting in in the investigation. Authorities say the victims are from Honduras. The Senate Judiciary Committee is preparing to hold a public hearing next week that would examine the ethical rules that govern the Supreme Court. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the Democratic-led effort comes after an investigation found that Justice Clarence Thomas came under scrutiny for accepting and not disclosing lavish gifts from a wealthy Republican donor. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin had sent a letter to Chief Justice John Roberts asking him to investigate the undisclosed gifts that Justice Thomas accepted from billionaire Harlan Crow. Durbin also asked Roberts to testify, but the chief justice turned down the invitation. In an interview with NPR, Senator Durbin says the panel is ready to move ahead without cooperation from the court. We're going to have a hearing May 2nd. We have uh, legislative authority to establish a code of ethics. Allegations against Justice Thomas have been referred to the Judicial Conference of the United States, a committee that reviews financial disclosures. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Rabbi Harold Kushner is being remembered for his international bestseller, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner died yesterday in hospice care in Canton. In a 2010 interview with NPR, Kushner reflected on life. The difference between the person who has a happy old age and the person who has an unhappy old age is not how successful they were, but it's how much the things they failed at continue to gnaw at them. For decades, Kushner served as rabbi at Temple Israel in Natick. He was 88 years old. The Massachusetts auditor finds the state needs to do a better job of tracking claims of elder abuse. A new audit follows a 2018 investigation. It found the state's Elder Affairs Office did not report seven incidents of serious abuse to district attorneys. Reporter Alden Bourne explains. Tammy Govea is with the auditor's office. She says the state has not been checking for new claims of elder abuse. On a monthly basis, which would be the true level of monitoring that we would want to have in place to ensure that elders are protected from ongoing and continuous abuse if they're experiencing it. In a response, the Office of Elder Affairs says while it's developing a system to automatically check for new claims, it will start actively checking for them. Govea pointed out the new audit covers a two-year period when Governor Charlie Baker was in charge and that the administration of Governor Mara Healey may handle things differently. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. A pride celebration that includes a drag performance scheduled for the small Worcester County town of North Brookfield can be held. The American Civil Liberties Union says it has clarification from the town's lawyer that the event on the common can go on as planned in June. The town select board approved a permit in March. On a second vote, it was denied after two of the board's three members objected to that drag show. Our forecast rain likely tonight with a low in the mid-40s. Rain tomorrow, possibly a thunderstorm, upper 50s. Mostly sunny on Monday, chance of morning showers, upper 60s. 51 degrees in Boston at 5.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. We begin tonight's program by taking stock of recent developments around abortion access. This week, abortion bans in two deeply conservative states, South Carolina and Nebraska, failed to advance in their respective legislatures, raising serious questions about the political viability of these types of laws for Republicans. And also this week, a study out of Oklahoma, a state with a number of abortion bans, sheds light on the real effects of these laws for many women seeking medical treatment. To help us understand these developments, we've called on NPR health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duffin. Hey, Selena. Hi, Sarah. Let's start with the abortion ban failures in Nebraska. And South Carolina. What did each of these bills propose? So the South Carolina bill was a ban at conception, and the Nebraska bill was a six-week ban. Both of them failed in kind of dramatic fashion. So in Nebraska, there was one crucial vote, Senator Merv Reapy. He is a retired hospital administrator who started to say, even though he originally co-signed the bill, that six weeks was maybe not quite enough time. And you and I both report on the fact that many women don't know that they're pregnant as early as six weeks. So he was starting to say, maybe this should be 12 weeks, maybe this should be later. And ultimately, he blocked this bill from proceeding. And then in South Carolina, there was a filibuster. All of the five women in the Senate 
uh, three Republicans, one Democrat and one independent banded together to filibuster um, a full abortion ban. During debate, they were raising the complications that can come up in pregnancy, um, the mental toll of dealing with law enforcement in cases of rape. Um, And ultimately, that bill failed as well. And of course, this is coming at a time when Republicans are increasingly concerned about political backlash from these restrictive bans. Uh, At the same time, we should note that some activists in the anti-abortion rights movement are are criticizing these moves by state lawmakers. Um, Students for Life of America, for example, issued a statement criticizing um, the lawmakers in South Carolina. Now, these aren't the only states where there's been legislative action on abortion. A couple of states, Minnesota and Washington, passed laws protecting abortion access. Selena, What do these laws do and how do they fit into the bigger picture? So these two laws protect patients and providers who are providing abortion care or receiving abortion care from being affected by laws in other states. So, for example, if a patient from Texas travels to Washington state or travels to Minnesota and gets an abortion, this law is designed to kind of shield them from um, any legal issues they might face when returning home. But, you know, you and I both know this is kind of the strange legal moment in terms of there have not been a lot of cases yet um, of patients who traveled for care, of providers who provided care to out-of-state patients. And so it's really unclear yet what these shield laws are going to do in practice and what states like Texas and some of these states that are really trying to kind of push the limit of in their abortion legislation, how far they're going to try to reach out into states where abortion is legal and enforce their their laws. Right. I think one legal expert put it to me, it's just uncharted territory at this point. Right. You also spent some time this week reporting on a study from Oklahoma that looks at the effects of abortion bans on medical care. What was that study and what did it find? Yeah, so this was interesting. A group of researchers from the Center for Reproductive Rights and Oklahoma Call for Reproductive Justice and Physicians for Human Rights um, did a study where they had some young women, grad students, call and say that they were prospective patients. Um, They called 34 hospitals in Oklahoma and they asked questions saying, you know, I'm pregnant and this is my first pregnancy and I'm nervous and I want to know what your policies are if complications come up in my pregnancy and I need a medical abortion. And they found that most hospitals could not articulate what the policy is. Like, do doctors have to seek guidance from a board? What is that process? What kind of support is there for doctors who provide medical abortions? The wording becomes really important because a lot of these laws are not using really medical terminology necessarily. And so it's really challenging for clinicians and and hospital administrators to translate that into real life. And it just goes to show that hospitals don't really know how to put these laws into practice. And so even something that sounds as straightforward as a life-saving abortion ends up being quite fraught and quite complicated. NPR's Lena Simmons-Duffin, thanks so much. Thank you. Anti-abortion activists are looking for new ways to restrict access, even in places where abortion remains legal under state law. Take New Mexico, a Democratic-controlled state where the governor has signed legislation protecting reproductive health care. But this week, a town of about 6,000 people pushed back against that law after a meeting that lasted into the wee hours of the morning. This is a battle against good and evil. One neighbor telling on some other neighbor, which I just think is, is a horrible thing to do to people. God will judge us. Be sure of it for innocent blood that's on our hands. Those are voices from Edgewood, New Mexico, about 30 miles outside Albuquerque. Residents of the Edgewood area crowded into the town commission's small hearing room and spent hours debating whether to pass an anti-abortion ordinance. 
Sarah Gerlitz told her neighbors that her husband Edward was at home taking care of their 18-month-old daughter. She said the family had recently moved here. I was hoping my first town commission meeting would be more in the lines of infrastructure improvements, but I was compelled to come speak here in person to please request no and to not limit my ability to choose my rights on my own body. The ordinance is designed to block the mailing of abortion pills and other abortion-related items to Edgewood, and residents could sue other residents for violating it. Three other towns and two counties in New Mexico have approved their own anti-abortion ordinances. The governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, recently signed a law taking effect in June that expressly forbids such local restrictions on abortion. Communities that violate the law could face expensive lawsuits and civil penalties. Anti-abortion activist Mark Lee Dixon, who also attended the meeting, has been promoting local bans around the country. Most have had little real-world impact before last summer's Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Since then, more than a dozen states have banned abortion, but Dixon told me he's concerned that people are just traveling to states where abortion is legal. This was a common happening all across America that the abortion industry, if they were in a state where abortion was banned, they were looking at crossing the border. New Mexico has become a hub for abortion providers and patients, and Democratic state leaders like Attorney General Raul Torres are taking steps to shore up access. I fundamentally believe that local governments don't have the authority under our state constitution to infringe on a woman's right to control access to reproductive health care. Torres sued several of these communities that passed anti-abortion ordinances, and the New Mexico Supreme Court issued a stay blocking them. But in Edgewood, some residents like Lindsay Donner feel that leaders in the state house and the governor's mansion don't represent them. It's time for Edgewood to take a stand for life and stand against the demonic agenda being pushed by the leaders in Santa Fe. Standing for this ordinance is not only standing for life, but also taking a stand against the tyranny in Santa Fe. Others, like Laura Aston argued that local commission members were focusing on divisive issues when they should be more worried about things like roads. Abortion access is not currently illegal in the state of New Mexico. So I'm not understanding why the commission of a very small town is taking the time and the resources to try to make it illegal. I'm a Christian. Just as she brought up her own faith alongside her support for abortion rights, someone in the audience interrupted her and muttered, if you were really a Christian, questioning the sincerity of her faith. Well, you can argue it and I can argue yours also. I don't think that my religion should affect everyone else. But some abortion rights opponents here say they expect and even embrace the idea of court fights. These anti-abortion proposals in Edgewood and elsewhere have been carefully crafted to cite a mostly overlooked federal law from 1873 called the Comstock Act, which forbids the mailing of abortion-related items. New Mexico attorney Mike Siebel insists that law is still valid nationwide. Normally, he works as a medical malpractice lawyer, often focusing on suing abortion providers. You can call me a vulture or an ambulance chaser or whatever you want. But now, Siebel wants to force the federal courts to weigh in on Comstock and say it still applies to sending abortion pills and other items through the mail. He's involved in a lawsuit against New Mexico state officials on behalf of Eunice, one of the towns that passed an anti-abortion ordinance. And he hopes that case, or one like it, will find its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
if we're successful and it goes to the Supreme Court, I think that would be a national abortion ban. The Biden administration said last year that Comstock does not prohibit the mailing of abortion pills in places where abortion is legal. New Mexico Attorney General Torres says this push to restrict abortion, even in states where it's legal, is a misuse of this 19th century law. Well, frankly, this entire charade is exactly that. Torres is one of 17 attorneys general who are part of a federal lawsuit designed to protect access to the abortion pill mifepristone. They filed the suit in Washington state in response to ongoing litigation from anti-abortion groups that want to cut off access to the widely used drug. There was this pretense, right, that now this question would no longer be addressed at the federal level. And I think what we have seen is that there was never really any intention to let states and individual representative bodies and state courts articulate how they were going to address this question. While restrictions like the ones in Edgewood may never be enforceable under New Mexico's laws, people here now are all too aware that they're living in an increasingly divided community. As the meeting dragged on, Edward Peck, the husband who was home taking care of his daughter, dialed in over Zoom. He said he and his wife, Sarah, are thinking of having more kids, but they're worried because she's in a high-risk age bracket for miscarriage, which Mifepristone is also used to treat. This ordinance would not allow her to have the medication that she would need in the tragic event that she miscarried and would not allow us to take care of that at home and in comfort. So I'm urging you to vote no. Sometime around 1.40 in the morning on Wednesday, the town commission finally voted 4-1 to one to approve the Edgewood Ordinance. We did pass um, Ordinance 2023-002. Just before voting yes, Commissioner Sterling Donner framed the decision as part of a larger battle. It's time to fight. It's time to rise up and, and to fight for not just our rights, but the rights of these unborn children that don't ever have a chance. So by doing this, we're making a statement. The New Mexico ACLU says it's preparing to file an amicus brief on Monday in support of the state attorney general's efforts to protect abortion access across New Mexico, including in Edgewood. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus online programs May 8th to 14th at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. Lend us your ears anywhere with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download or update in your app store now. 51 degrees cloudy in Boston at 518. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England, Zoo What Makes You Happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In southern Texas, the sheriff's office says at least five people are dead, including a child, after a neighbor opened fire with an AR-15-style weapon after being asked to stop firing it in his front yard. Authorities say the victims are from Honduras.
The U.S. says it stands with the Philippines as China's Coast Guard continues to harass its vessels in the South China Sea as they undertake routine patrols. The State Department says it's calling on Beijing to, quote, desist from provocative and unsafe conduct. And Rabbi Harold Kushner, author of the book When Bad Things Happen to Good People and Others on Spirituality, died Friday at the age of 88. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the University at Buffalo, where researchers are developing new technology for people to take control of their health, like an earbud-based system that can detect common ear ailments, buffalo.edu slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Writers in Hollywood are preparing to go on strike against the major studios. The two sides, the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, have until midnight on Monday to agree on a new three-year contract. Joining us now to talk about this is NPR's culture correspondent, Mandalik Del Barco, who's in Los Angeles. Hi, Mandalik. Hi, Sarah. So tell us what the writers want this time. Well, the WGA says their members are at a breaking point. The writers want to get paid more for writing films, TV shows, and now streaming series. They say half of their members are only getting the minimum wage negotiated in their last contract. And importantly, they would like to get higher residual checks for work that ends up on streaming platforms. You know, the last time the writers went on strike, it was 2007. And back then, they were asking for better compensation for movies and shows that were sold on DVDs or internet downloads. And now that DVDs are practically extinct and streamers like Netflix and Amazon Prime are king. So the money for streaming is a really big deal. I know. I had to watch a DVD the other day and I couldn't honestly even figure out how to use my DVD player. (laughs) What are the living conditions for these writers right now? Well, you know, writers in Hollywood are basically gig workers with a union, and they have to constantly look for their next job. And for some TV writers especially, it's become really, really difficult. The streaming studios are asking for series to last 8 to 10 episodes a season rather than the traditional 22-episode seasons on network TV, and that means less work and less money for the writers. But even network writers are not immune to this. I spoke to Brittany Nichols, who writes for the ABC show Abbott Elementary, and she told me that between seasons, she used to be able to live off residuals she got when ABC re-aired an episode that she wrote. She got half her original writing fee each time, but when her episodes are sold to the streamers, she gets just 5.5% of her writing fee. There's no reason for them to replay it on television where I would get that network residual. They're only going to put it on these streamers where I'm going to be making at best $700. You know, you're getting checks for $3, $7, $10. It's, it's not enough to put together any sort of consistent lifestyle. And, you know, Sarah, I've talked to other writers, even those on hit shows, who say they're not living some kind of lavish Hollywood dream lifestyle. They're, they're basically broke in between gigs. So what are the studios saying about all this? Well, right now there's a media blackout by negotiators on both sides until the contract ends on Monday night. 
The CEO of Netflix, Ted Sarandos, told investors during a recent earnings call that the studios are hoping there's not a strike and that the last time the writers went on strike, it was devastating for everyone, including viewers. He said Netflix has a large base of upcoming shows and films from around the world. And there are a lot of reports that studio executives have been stockpiling scripts for months in anticipation of a strike. And they also reportedly are preparing more reality shows that don't need script writers. That's NPR's Mandalit Del Barco, NPR's culture correspondent in Los Angeles. Thanks so much, Mandalit. Thanks, Sarah. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad has held on through a decade of civil war, seeming to prevail. And now even countries that once opposed him are starting to deal with his government again. Which raises the question, what about the Syrians who perished in the country's jails just for asking for democracy? Or those who fled the country in fear of reprisals for speaking out? NPR's Ruth Sherlock looks at whether diplomatic normalization will affect attempts to hold Syria accountable. For Syrians like Ghufran Holani, watching the regime be slowly rehabilitated is particularly painful. I feel sad that some countries start to normalize with Assad and to forget all the people who died and suffered under the regime. Security forces imprisoned her sister Amina and four of her brothers. Three of those, Mohammed, Majid and Abdul Sattar, died in detention. Speaking with me from Ireland, where she now lives, Khulani says this is the price her family paid for peaceful opposition to the Syrian government. If you heard about the initiative of flower and water. In the demonstrations in 2011, Khulani says her brother Majid, then a 19-year-old law student and his friends, taped fresh flowers to water bottles and gave them to soldiers sent to attack the protesters. They added handwritten notes, Kholani calls them signs, appealing for unity. There is a sign to say why you kill us, me and you, in the same side. On the same side, yeah. Yes, I remember that exactly. The family became known for these kinds of non-violent actions. One by one, security forces detained Kholani's siblings and then refused to say where they were being held. So we were searching about them and we tried to find any information about them. Paying bribes, the family eventually found Majid and Abdul Sattar. They were in the notorious Sednaya prison, where documentation shows thousands of people have been executed or have died under torture. They were allowed to visit for just five minutes. Then, years later, Kholani says the government issued their death certificates. Kholani says she learned the fate of her other brother, Mohammed, through photos a Syrian police defector known to the world as Caesar smuggled out and posted online, showing thousands of dead prisoners. She and a relative spent days searching through those images, seeing the scars of torture on inmates' bodies, until they found him. I searched between those picture lots, and it was um, awful experience. And in every picture, I start to imagine not only Muhammad, also search for Abed and Majid. Now Khulani is part of the Caesar Family Association, a group that calls for justice for Syrian victims of torture and forced disappearances. The Syrian Ministry of Foreign Affairs did not reply to NPR's request for comment. 
Although no one has been prosecuted for what Kholani says was done to her family, senior Syrian officials have started facing charges outside the country for other cases. There have been a number of trials in the West already against figures in the Assad regime for crimes against humanity and war crimes. Lina Khatib is the director of the Middle East Institute at SOAS University in London. In one, a former Syrian colonel was convicted in Germany for torture in Syria's prisons. In another, a Syrian-American filed a case to a court in Washington, D.C. This is happening as some countries in the region are rebuilding relations with President Assad, like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Khatib says for now that shouldn't affect the cases in Europe and the U.S. Arab countries themselves have, for the most part, not really pursued any legal mechanisms to hold the Syrian regime accountable for war crimes. So we are talking about a very different context in the Arab world. Patrick Croker, a lawyer who's represented some of the Syrian torture victims in Germany, broadly agrees with Khatib. But he says as more countries reopen ties with Assad, it could make it harder to follow through on prosecutions. For example, when a court asks a country to act on an arrest warrant and detain an individual. He says, say a wanted Syrian official visits Saudi Arabia. Now that Saudi has a relationship with Damascus, it has a decision to make. What is more important to us? Is it justice or is it, you know, the outlook of making good business deals in Syria? And yeah, this is just a very cynical scenario, but one that has become a lot more likely now. Croker says prosecutors will likely continue to try cases against Syrian officials and remind people of the abuses there. Any country that is normalizing relations to the Syrian regime must be aware that it's normalizing torture. He hopes this will stop countries from warming up to Syria. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut. Historians in India have expressed outrage over changes in 12th grade textbooks, especially references to the extremist ideology that's believed to be the reason behind the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi in 1948. Called the father of the nation, Gandhi is known globally for his nonviolent campaign for India's independence. Critics see this as an attempt to appropriate the government's pro-Hindu agenda. From Delhi, Shalu Yadav reports. About 70 miles from Delhi, in the northeastern town of Meerut, a group of men are paying their respects to the statue of Nathuram Godse, the man who assassinated Mahatma Gandhi, one of India's most revered leaders. This is a part of their daily routine, where they start with prayers and slogans glorifying Godse. They are members of a far-right Hindu nationalist group called Hindu Mahasabha, to which Godse belonged. They accuse Gandhi of betraying Hindus by being too pro-Muslim and also for the partition of India in 1947, which led to the creation of the neighboring Islamic nation, Pakistan. After the prayer ends, one of the members, Abhishek Agrawal, tells me he's proud of what Godse did. Scores of Hindus were killed by Muslims during partition because of Gandhi. Someone had to come forward to punish the man responsible for those killings. It is because of Gandhi that we still have so many Muslims living in India. But the founding fathers of post-colonial India had always argued that the country's diversity could only survive under a secular umbrella. 
and for generations, Godse had been portrayed as a criminal and even a Hindu extremist who was hanged after a lengthy trial in 1949. But these narratives are changing and they start from the 12th grade history and political science textbooks. I've come to a market just at the outskirts of Delhi where students are buying these textbooks. NCRT class 12, uh, political science and history books. I've just found the old and new versions of the same textbook. The paragraphs in the latest version are much shorter after the alterations. The older version says that Gandhi's steadfast pursuit of Hindu-Muslim unity provoked Hindu extremists so much that they made several attempts to assassinate him. This version also says that after Gandhi was killed, the government banned right-wing organizations like the RSS or Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh. But in the new version, this line is nowhere to be seen. Before joining the Hindu Mahasabha, Kodse had also been a member of the RSS which is now the ideological frontier of the ruling Hindu Nationalist Party, the BJP. In fact, Prime Minister Narendra Modi himself has been a long-time member of the group. The RSS denies its involvement in the assassination of Gandhi. Ram Madhav, a prominent member of the RSS, defended the move and called the textbook's changes, quote, only a rationalization. It's only a rationalization. No historical person's contribution has been ignored or undermined. Syllabus has only been rationalized so that too much repetition doesn't happen, which leads to too much burden on the students. But it's not just Gandhi's legacy that has been weakened in the new textbooks. The contribution of India's first education minister, Maulana Azad, a Muslim, for example, is no longer mentioned. Some references to Mughal rule in India have been removed. References to the 2002 deadly riots that killed hundreds of Muslims in Gujarat where Modi was the state's top leader, were reduced to one line. Imagine that in the United States, you had a history which wiped out the history of slavery, which wiped out the history of blacks, which didn't tell you what Martin Luther King, which didn't tell you what he fought for really, or why he was assassinated. These alterations worry historians such as Mridula Mukherjee. She blames the ruling BJP government for trying to reshape India into a Hindu first nation. We cannot uh, blind ourselves to uh, the fact that these are part of a pattern, and a very dangerous pattern. These are not just things happening by chance. Tushar Gandhi, the great-grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, agrees. He fears that a secular country that his ancestor once fought for is slowly losing the pluralistic values as the country is being turned into a Hindu majoritarian nation. The voices of truth have to be raised, otherwise we will lose his legacy. And that will be a greater tragedy than his murder in 1948. A greater tragedy for a tolerant democracy that India has been known for. For NPR News, I'm Shalu Yadav in Delhi. Listening to All Things Considered.
For half a century, Opera Ebony has been one of the guiding lights for black performers looking to make their mark on the opera world. The company gave many of its singers their first chance to perform professionally. To mark its 50th anniversary, Brandon Gates sat down with Opera Ebony's last surviving co-founder as he reflects on what he called his life's greatest work. Wayne Sanders settles back into a vintage love seat in a room filled with heavy antiques. It's the same Upper West Side apartment where he co-founded his opera company. Opera Ebony started in this living room, literally. The table wasn't there. That chair wasn't there. Here's who was there, a white nun named Sister Mary Elise and Sanders' long-term roommate, friend, and fellow musician Benjamin Matthews. They were concerned about the lack of opportunities for black performers in 1973. One of the things that was most important to them was getting young performers to experience opera early. You need to be singing, and you need to be singing all this music, and you need to have that experience with it, and the world needs to hear you. The world heard Opera Ebony. The company toured internationally in venues big and small, centering black voices. Black people participated in opera wholly, receiving opportunities to direct, design sets and costumes, and play in the orchestra. Naomi Andre is a professor of music at UNC Chapel Hill. She says Opera Ebony's endurance is remarkable. I mean, 50 years, that's huge for American opera companies, and particularly, I don't know of any other black opera company that's continued that long. In 1973, when Opera Ebony started, some black women opera singers, like Marian Anderson and Leotine Price, had become household names. Andre says, at the time, it was harder for black male performers to be cast in operas with white female singers on stage. The fear of miscegenation. I mean, we just had Loving versus State of Virginia, which allowed interracial couples to be legal in all United States in 1967. So at the time when Opera Ebony opened, it was still a big thing to have interracial relationships and acting them out on the opera stage was something that gave some people pause. This was also the moment of the Black Arts Movement. Artists like Benjamin Matthews and Wayne Sanders were not just exploring classical pieces, but also music reflecting African-American experiences. Spirituals, work songs, jazz and gospel were all in Opera Ebony's repertoire, highlighting often neglected Black composers. We had to make sure that we continue to do a lot of our own music because then it wasn't commonplace. Opera Ebony helped change the classical music landscape, but now it's having a tough time. The organization, which once averaged three performances a year, is down to one. Its co-founder, Wayne Sanders, is 81 years old but he believes that Opera Ebony will outlast him. For NPR News, I'm Brandon Gates. This is NPR News. 
I'm Susan Levy. Thanks for listening. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, the lead therapist on Showtime's docuseries, Couples Therapy. Also, why viewers should care about a writer strike. It's Been a Minute starts at 6. And join Here and Now co-host Robin Young on Tuesday, May 16th. It's for a city space conversation exploring toxic restaurant culture and how it can change. Free tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. 50 degrees cloudy in Boston at 539. Rain likely tonight and rain tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Long Hill in Beverly. Hosting world-renowned garden experts in a spring garden symposium May 6th and 7th. More at thetrustees.org slash Symposium. And the Independent Film Festival Boston, celebrating 20 years with screenings April 26th through May 3rd. Information at iffboston.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The State Department says a bus convoy arrived in Port Sudan today carrying American citizens and others from the capital Khartoum and other parts of Sudan where fighting continues between rival military factions. As the California winter snowpack starts to melt, there are worries about flooding. Parts of Yellowstone National Park is closed through Wednesday, and the world's largest tree in the Sequoia National Park will be off-limits through the summer because of winter storm damage. And President Biden, Vice President Harris, and their spouses are attending the annual Correspondents' Dinner in Washington, D.C. tonight. The host is The Daily Show comedian Roy Wood, Jr. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Earlier this week, Jerry Springer, the former talk show host and Cincinnati mayor, died at the age of 79. Since the early 90s, The Jerry Springer Show was a hit and well-known for its salacious topics, cheating spouses, secret children, and arguments that would escalate into fistfights. But one prominent feature of his program was transgender people, and they were often featured as a spectacle and sometimes even faced violence on stage. I never was even really honest with you. You know what, what I mean? What you mean? You know why? Because I was born a male. To get a better sense of the legacy of The Springer Show and how it dealt with these issues, we've called trans activist and award-winning author Raquel Willis. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into your thoughts on the show, Jerry Springer, of course, was a huge pop culture force, especially back in the 90s. How did you react to the news of his death? Well, I will say I think there was a tinge of nostalgia that kind of washed over me. Uh, Some of my earliest memories are Jerry Springer's show being on in the background of our house. I'm from Augusta, Georgia. And so, 
it was a regular staple on our television. And then I think in a deeper way, as someone who is fully realized in my identity as a Black trans woman now looking back, I also just think about the ways that those portrayals, particularly of trans people and LGBTQ people writ large, but also folks of color, probably seeped a bit into my understanding of the world and and how our stories can be sensationalized in a way that may not be the most beneficial. If you don't mind my asking, Raquel, I mean, where were you at that time in your understanding of yourself? And how did it feel to see these kinds of scenes play out on Jerry Springer's show? Well, Jerry Springer was on for most of my life, of course. And I think as a young queer kid who knew that I was different, knew I had all of these questions around gender, it was a bit frightening to see trans people on television depicted in the ways that they were on The Jerry Springer Show. I think some of those ideas of deception, of not being worthy of love and desire and dignity and respect really kind of colored the way that I even saw the trans experience. And I'm sure folks who weren't trans also absorbed some of those ideas as well. Yeah. And what did that mean for your life? I mean, did that that affect the way that you talked about yourself or presented yourself in some way? Well, I think that it's one of those situations where if your earliest experiences of seeing people similar to you in the media were them as jokes or as threats, then you wonder, well, what will your family or the people who know you and even also strangers think of you in the world once you share your truth? And I know that that is a common experience amongst particularly a lot of trans women of color as our stories were often the ones that were elevated uh, on the Jerry Springer show. So it's, it's detrimental. I mean, if you imagine the life of someone who grew up in the 90s, so for me in the 90s, and didn't really see visibility for the trans experience in a real, authentic, vulnerable way until I was an adult, there is a lot for me to catch up on on a personal level to understand my inherent value and worth in society. We should note that in interviews, Jerry Springer himself had said that his intention was not to offend people. And he learned over the years that certain words that were used on the program were offensive. You know, even back in 1993, in a closing monologue on his show, Springer seemed to come to the defense of his trans guests, at least to some extent. Let's listen to that. If our guests today have body parts that don't relate to who they are, why can't they fix that? Maybe the point here is not to judge a person until you've walked a mile in his shoes, even if they are high-heeled. Raquel, I wonder what you make of that clip and just the overall idea that his views on the trans community may be changed over time. Yes, I think our society in so many ways has evolved since the 90s, of course. And, you know, I think that there is unfortunately this long history of kind of a sensationalized interest in trans people's experiences. However, I do think as a media figure, regardless of the times and what is acceptable, 
and I say this as someone with a background in journalism and who is a writer, that we have to do our due diligence to make sure that we're moving with as much empathy as possible. And that means actually understanding how the way that we depict people's stories or even elevate people's stories can open them up to harm, especially if they're already marginalized. So I accept the idea that he and many others have evolved in the last decades. But I also think that much of what we understand to be wrong now was already wrong then. That's trans activist Raquel Willis. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Of course. Thank you. Many stories have been told about girlhood, puberty, and coming of age, but perhaps none are more well-known than this one. Hey there, God. It's me, Margaret. I'm a little nervous, actually, about being alone, so can you just not let anything really horrible happen? That's a clip from the new film adaptation of Judy Blume's wildly popular 1970s coming-of-age novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. The film and book follow 11-year-old Margaret Simon as she confronts early adolescent anxieties like menstruating for the first time, discovering boys, and of course, boobs. Look how round they are. Mine just look like little wizard ads. <laughs> Hillary Bright is a 19-year-old who loves water skiing, horses, and going out to the mall for an orange Julius. Do you think any of us will look like that when we're 19? We must! We must! We must increase our bust! We must! We must! <laughs> Abby Ryder Fortson plays the eponymous Margaret in the long-awaited film adaptation, and she joins us now to tell us more about it. Abby Ryder Fortson, thanks so much for being with us. Of course. Hi. Hi. That must have been so fun to film this movie, first of all. Oh, yes, 100%. It was some of the four best months of my life. Well, this book is pretty iconic as far as tales about young adulthood go. And, you know, there are a lot of classic moments, but it was released more than 50 years ago. So long before your time, even before my time, how familiar were you with the book when you decided to take this role? Oh, my gosh. I am so embarrassed. I never actually read Judy Bloom before I got the audition. I'm a huge reader. I always have been. But I guess Judy and I just missed each other. I was really into sci-fi and fantasy when I was younger. So I, I didn't I never really dove deep into the trenches of all of Judy Bloom's wonderful, wonderful stories. But as soon as I got the audition to play Margaret, I immediately just said to my my parents after I had finished reading it I was like oh my gosh how did someone write down this experience this is it and in the 70s whoa <laughs> yeah I mean what was it about the book when you first read it that jumped out at you as like so relevant I I was surprised that I I related to her so much even though it was written in the 70s I think that her experience of all those awkward teenage moments and having all those feelings that you don't really know how to deal with yet and just figuring out so many new things about yourself I think we really all can relate to that constantly even if you're you know 11 or 50 or 80 it just it shares a message that we all really can connect to yeah I mean 
I've got a tween and a teen, and so I'm seeing it firsthand. But I think every single adult would tell you they remember that age so well because it is such a tough age for so many people, and it's such a pivotal time. Did you feel any pressure coming into this role, just knowing how beloved a book it is by so many people? I tried not to. <laughs> I did my best. Um, I think that the main thing was is that we really wanted Judy to be happy because Margaret was her baby for 50 years, and she finally kind of passed it along to us to really bring it to life. And while she was on set for a couple of weeks, we were all just like nervously looking over our shoulders being like, oh my God, is Judy happy? We just really want her to be happy with this. We want to do right by her. So I think, I think that she is super duper happy. And I hope that everyone else who grew up with the book will be as well. I know you're about 15 now, but you were probably around Margaret's age when this was filming. I mean, how much I asked you, you said you related to a lot of the book, but I mean, how how did it help you think about what you were going through at that age? Yeah, I was 13 when we shot and just her entire journey, her entire experience. I 100% relate to her in so many ways. And it really did help me kind of reflect on my own experiences and kind of look at them with a little bit more kindness and being like, okay, um, I might have had some very awkward moments when I was 12 and 13 and 11 and all those ages. But Abby was great back then. And they're great moments to look back and laugh on. So... <laughs> You know, in addition to all the physical and emotional changes people go through in, in puberty, the film, it also talks about issues of faith. I mean, it's right there in the title and how much that can be part of finding yourself. What do you think about the way that Margaret worked through her questions about God and religion? I think that it's done in a very unique way. And I think Margaret all she's really looking for is a friend. She's looking for someone to confide in. She wants all of these changes are happening to her and to her life. And she's just looking for one person that she can rely on. And she finds that in in God or whoever she's talking to or maybe even her, her inner self. And I think that when you when you look at Margaret's journey, She's figuring out that it's okay to be who she is, but not feeling forced to put a label on what she believes like her grandparents both sides want her to. And we should say, for those who may not be as familiar with the film or the book, that Margaret's growing up in an interfaith household, right? So that's part of her tension is, yes. is how to find God and, and which which religion to choose. Yes. Her dad's side really, really wants her to be Jewish, and her mom's side really, really wants her to be Christian. And then there's this pivotal scene in the film where both of the families are kind of screaming at each other, being like, no, she has to be this. No, she has to be this. No, she has to be this. I, I think it's a really interesting moment in the film because you really get to see that her Margaret realized that she doesn't really need a label on her religion. She just needs to know what she believes in. And I think that's what she's trying to figure out throughout the film. And isn't that what so much of like adolescence and growing up is about more broadly too, right? Just figuring out who do other people want you to be and who are you and how do you sort of connect those dots in a way that feels authentic? 
Oh, yeah. I think that especially with the friends, with Nancy and Gretchen and, and Janie, and you have all of these people kind of telling Margaret what to be, what to wear, how to act, all this. And she's kind of, she's going along with it, but inside of herself, she's kind of like, ugh, do I really want to do this? And then finally, she gets the courage to stand up for herself and say, nope, no more. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be nice to Laura Denker now. <laughs> I know your mom, uh, Christy Lynn Smith, and your dad, John Fortson, both are actors. How did they help you, if at all, in preparing for this role? Yes, they're both actors. And my uh, honestly, when I first wanted to be an actor, it was because they used to bring me into their auditions. So when I was about like three and a half, I just kind of turned to them and I was like, oh, my God. Hey, guys, I kind of want to be an actor. This looks fun. Um <laughs> Oh, super cool. Uh, what was their reaction to, to seeing you uh, in the role as Margaret? My mom started crying. Aww. Was the story um, meaningful to your mom as a younger girl? Yes, uh -huh. it was. She had read the book when she was a kid, and she had loved it. And um, I think watching everything just as an audience member is already emotional. The story is already a, an emotional story. But then watching it when your kid is doing it, I think that just upped the tears for her. And I was like, oh, my God, mom, it's just opening titles. It hasn't even started yet. Don't start crying now. They must be really proud of you. Yes, they are. What are you hoping that kids who see this film will take away from it? I really hope that, one, everyone has a great time. I think it's a really funny, fun movie to go see. But secondly, I really hope that it opens up more conversation. I think that we are, especially in the United States right now, we're in a time where it's getting uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to talk about, you know, periods and boobs and your body changing and puberty. And I know every single time that a kid hears those words, they just want to internally die because it's horrible to hear those words, especially from a parent or a teacher or something. But Or a radio host. Or a radio host or someone on the radio. Yes. If you're listening to this and your parents right next to you, you're going to probably be cringing right now. Um, but it is so, so, so important that we talk about all of these topics because the more that you talk about them, the more open that conversation is. I think films can be a great buffer between, you know, what do you feel about this instead of, oh, what does this character feel about this? And I think it can kind of alleviate some of the very traumatizing experiences that most of us have had with the sex talk. Reduce the cringe, if nothing else, right? Yes, reducing the cringe. <laughs> <laughs> that was Abby ryder and She plays Margaret in the new film adaptation of Judy Bloom's classic coming-of-age tale, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. The movie is in theaters now. Abby Ryder Fordson, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul. 